MSW Media. The Trump Justice Department used its law enforcement powers to investigate Democratic congressmen and journalists who are reporting on the Russia investigation. What should Attorney General Garland be doing to undo politicization of the DOJ? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of the Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I bring in Patty, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks to Andrew Donnelly, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Angela Jackson, Ari Lamstein, Dan Maruska, Kimberly Summers, Joe Targonsky, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So, Patty, you know, it's been uh, very unusual. There's been a lot of news coming out uh, over the past uh, week or so. Uh, First, it was about, of course, journalists having, you know, uh, their phone records uh, subpoenaed, get court orders, uh, trying to find their sources. Then we hear that members of Congress not only are themselves having their metadata uh, seized by law enforcement, but the, their associates, some of them, even minors, are having their uh, their uh, their metadata seized. Uh, essentially, people who were connected to Congressman Schiff or, or Congressman Swalwell, and then now we've been learning about the intense pressure that Trump was placing on the Justice Department to investigate his bogus election, you know, election fraud scam. I, you know, I will tell you, it's a very difficult thing for Attorney General Garland to deal with. And a lot of people have been critical that he's not doing enough. I, I, how do you react to all of this? Well, you know, I've been listening to interviews that you've been giving, actually. And, you know, you've talked a lot about how his background as a judge who really goes by the letter of the law, that he's, you know, so kind of this very steady hand when it comes to justice. The issue on, well, there's so many, Renato. <laughs> But, you know, <laughs> Trump worked very hard uh, to delegitimize so many aspects of what we have come to rely on and trust, whether it's agencies like the FBI or the Department of Justice, you know, the Department of Justice, because he undermined it by using his political pressure, but also the press and all these different parts of our society that, you know, come together to make what our democracy is. And if it, I get it, I get that Biden isn't going to put pressure on him. We don't want a president to exert pressure on our, uh, you know, on Garland. But at the same time, it, I think that it would go a long way to restore faith in our in our government. And and I and I wish there was a way to <laughs> impress upon uh, that urgency on Merrick Garland. Yeah, I have to say that it's been interesting for me to see 
the uh, attacks starting to come on Attorney General Garland that he's not aggressive enough. He hasn't been doing enough. And, and I will say I did expect some sort of overt action on his part to deal with politicization. I expected in the first you know, 100 days uh, of his time as, as attorney general, we would hear about what, whether it's a task force or certain activities that they were uh, doing to try to create safeguards to ensure that this didn't happen again. And I have to say from my perspective – what what I am most concerned about and what I think is most difficult is how to ensure that this doesn't happen again. In other words, Trump put a lot of pressure on Barr to follow his crazy, you know, uh, off the wall in, you know, election conspiracy theories. Barr refused. You know, he ended up leaving. His deputy, Rosen, had wanted to have nothing to do with it and just basically just said no and refused to do it. And, but could you imagine if one of them felt differently? If you had somebody with, no, with even less integrity in that? I mean, it, look, bar is not high. Is, is a, bar is such a low bar, okay, for integrity. And even he, this was too much even for him. But you could imagine... You know, we can't rely on the judgment or the character of individual people. We need to have structures in place that can ensure that the government's not abusing its power. I think that's what concerns me, Patty, to make sure this doesn't happen again. Exactly. I think that that's the other part of it. And that goes to everything when it comes to Trump. And, you know, the lack of swift movement and justice for a lot of us also seems to be emboldening Republicans on a daily basis. You know, whether it's that we can't believe what we see, uh, you know, refusing to honor the police that were protecting the Capitol. You know, they if there is no if there is no justice, they, they can continue to behave this way and it will happen again. I have no doubt that it will happen again. They're gearing up. You know, it doesn't have to be Trump. They just use him as their figurehead to raise money. But this will continue. And I, I don't even at this point, I don't even know <laughs> If slowing that momentum will even help if we continue down this very slow pace of holding people accountable. Yeah, I have to say, look, the Biden administration has been a breath of fresh air. Uh, I wake up. I don't have to worry uh, that uh, I'm going to need to take the streets. I don't worry that, um, you know, our president is going to be trying to usurp um, law enforcement powers to. Uh, used against his political rivals, that sort of thing. But I think um, there has to be a recognition that as a country, we got to a very scary and dangerous place. I think after the George W. Bush administration, there wasn't enough of a reckoning about some of the decisions made during that administration. I can't, I don't want to compare it, actually, to the Trump administration because I think the Trump administration kind of stands alone as a unique threat to our democratic system of government and our, our, the, our constitutional system. And I think it's really a challenge for people like myself uh, and our guests who will be bringing in, you know, who were our veterans of the Justice Department, who think that uh, the, the, the Justice Department can be a great, uh, a great tool for good and I think a lot of us do respect the Justice Department, but, uh, you know, it, it's a tool that in the wrong hands 
can not only be a dangerous thing, but it also can destroy any faith we have. I will tell you, Patty, I'm scared about the government doing something, uh, you know, and abusing its power. I'm concerned about that. I don't trust the government. And so if we don't have structures in place that prevent abuses, uh, I I distrust my own former uh, employer at the Justice Department. Well, that's a, that's a sad that's a sad thing to even contemplate, isn't it? And I will, you know, say as well, not just our faith in this government, but I, I don't even know how we kind of claw back the ability to have conversations with people or, you know, using logic and reason I'm traveling. And I'll tell you, I've been in some small towns uh, in the Midwest where I'm in a diner and everyone's talking about how the election was stolen and everybody agrees and everybody believes there all these people are talking about how, well, he's going to be back. They're saying things like, I don't know how it works, but I know he's going to be reinstated. And and that's the other thing too, without the accountability that grows a lot of energy and it, it's contagious. And that, that frightens me because I will say the people who are most likely to believe in Trump, they got a lot of weapons, Renato. <laughs> well, I just tell you, it's a bad thing for our country because it's a, delegitimiz- a delegitimization of the president of the United States. You know, ultimately, you know, Joe Biden is the president of the United States and our constitutional system. There's absolutely no way in which that can change unless he's impeached and removed. Uh, it is what it is. He is the president. And the, the electoral votes have been counted and certified and so forth. And so this talk is just complete like nonsense. It's complete gibberish. It means nothing. Um, and, you know, it's crazy to me how not only is there this right, you know, kind of right wing hysteria over in conspiracy theories, but to be very blunt, uh, in order to be a successful politician on the right, you kind of have to feed into that stuff. There are people, you know, just sort of run-of-the-mill politicians on in the Republican side who have gone into this conspiracy theory vein because, frankly, that is successful. That is what it takes to be a successful politician on the Republican side right now. Absolutely, and it is very cult-like, I'm telling you. I mean, these folks, and it's not just one place or one state. I'm listening. I'm a big eavesdropper. I don't know about you, but and now that I'm back out in public, you know, I'm fully vaccinated. Uh, it's scary being back around people in these environments where they just, you know, uh, a lot of racism more so than I, you know, there was uh, always more of a hushed tones when people wanted to have these conversations, but so much of it revolves around race and abortion and uh and but really the biggest thing is that that trump won and that the world took it from him that democrats are communists and socialists that that democrats are dangerous it's it's just i i I did not realize it because we kind of live in our own bubbles um and i really don't know how we cut through that yeah i think it's very hard it really goes to a subject we've talked about before the disinformation you know i for me i have family members who uh would echo a lot of the same feelings and certainly are Trump voters and, you know, right wing folks. And they get their news from these outlets that and it's not even they're not really I wouldn't even consider them news outlets. They're just dis- dis- deceivers who are basically deceiving my family members uh, into believing falsehoods. So, you know, it's bad for the country uh, because the, their beliefs that, and it really are not grounded in any sort of objective reality. 
Um, and I, I have to say, I don't, uh, you know, I don't have a good answer for how to deal with that. Um, and I am very concerned about at some point, because elections go back and forth in this country, some point those people get power in this country. I don't want them using these law enforcement tools against me and my family or yours. Right. right. Well, but that's the thing. That's the thing, too, is there's so many states across the country that have Republican controlled state legislatures. And we're seeing how that's having a, a really devastating impact, whether it's voting rights or access to reproductive health, which is health care. Abortion is health care. Uh, you know, this it, it, it is, you know, again, we're in these pockets. I live in Illinois where we have some of the, the most progressive voting rights. You know, they expanded the ability to vote and do drop off boxes. And they, we have protective rights for women's access to health care. Um, you know, and, and that's really kind of only isolated to like the northern part of Illinois. And so there's, I feel like we're surrounded. I don't, I don't know. I, I hate to be alarmist, but like I said, traveling through a couple of different states in the Midwest has me um Michigan and Indiana, there's some uh, some uh, radical folks out there who want to they really believe that their liberty, their freedoms are threatened by Democrats. Well, you know, it is I, what I would say is I, I blame the charlatans who deceive them. And I think, you know, we really have a lot of work to do. Uh, and I and I'm and like I said, I am concerned about now because um, obviously we're also seeing uh the ones who attacked our Capitol on January 6th being brought to justice. I do worry about even, you know, we have members of Congress and the Republican side not wanting to honor the Capitol Police, calling uh, uh, the uh, some of the attackers who, who, you know, one of the attackers in particular who perished martyrs and this and that. Um, you know, really, uh, we're, we're entering dangerous, dangerous territory. Well, let me bring in our guest. Uh, we... We, uh, you know, we uh, really I want to explore this issue of politicization of the DOJ, something very dear to my heart and really, I think, has taken over the news over this last week. Been a, such a big topic. Uh, and I'm going to bring in uh, Frank Fig- uh, Figlusi. Uh And Frank is the uh, former assistant at, assistant director for counterintelligence at the, at the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Before that, he was a special agent in charge of the Cleveland division. Uh, and, you know, he's done some stuff in the private sector afterwards. And probably what you may know the, the most about, about Frank is he is a very frequent contributor on MSNBC, an analyst there. He's uh, all over the place. He's also uh, part of a uh, podcast network with me. And we'll talk a little bit about his podcast as well at his book that's out. Uh, but somebody who I think really loves the Justice Department as an institution. The FBI, of course, is part of the Justice Department. And what I'm interested in is you know, getting his thoughts about how concerned we should be about this news, because I think we should be concerned on one end, but not over, over overly concerned. But then also, what should we do about it? So let's bring in Frank. Frank, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Um, anytime we can talk about What's near and dear to our heart, namely the Department of Justice, uh, it's a good day. Well, absolutely. You know, it, it. I think this is the sort of thing that, at least for me, it, it's. I kind of am pulled in two different directions. On the one hand, I love the Justice Department as an institution. Uh, and I know, you know, obviously there's often, for example, very legitimate reasons to use law enforcement tools. But I have to say, some of the news that we've heard over this past week is very disturbing, both the 
the you know obviously seeing the investigation of media and those sources is obviously a cause for concern. You have the metadata that was subpoenaed from uh, associates of a couple members of Congress, Democratic members of Congress, who are critical of the Trump administration, and then of course all you know the release just the other day of these communications that made it clear that we were pretty close to Trump hijacking the Justice Department to advance his conspiracy theories. I think everything you've just cited, and perhaps more, are further evidence of of how fragile our democracy is, something we've taken for granted, and I'm guilty of this myself, just taken for granted most of our lives, and how close we came, how perilous, uh, perilously close we were to kind of really reshaping American democracy in a, in a very negative way. And I fear, Renato, that we're just learning the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the, the, the scope and span of the abuses of DOJ that have happened during the prior administration. Well, here's what I'm concerned about. Obviously, I'm breathing a sigh of relief that Joe Biden is the president of the United States. I don't uh, lie awake at night worrying about what Merrick Garland's going to do. But I have to say, it concerns me that our our country and really our constitutional system perhaps rested on the integrity of uh, Barr, Rosen, people like that. And if you had somebody who was willing to go along with what Trump wanted— you know, we could have had, a, a, as you say, a reshaping of our what American democracy means. What I'm concerned about is, you know, while it's great to have Merrick Garland as our attorney general, what do we do to prepare and set up structures for the day when somebody who's le- who has less integrity than him is the uh, attorney general of the United States? Yeah, you're you're thinking in the right direction and asking the same questions I'm asking, and I think much of the public and the media are asking. And and, and so first to, to to just kind of echo your comment on, geez, we we actually had to rely on people like uh, Sessions, Barr, Rosen, you know, I, I, to to save us. Um, it the you know to to borrow a phrase from the criminal world, uh, there there I guess was honor among thieves. I mean, people who were willing to. <laughs> to steal our democracy from us still had a line or various lines they would not cross. And thank God for that. Um, but you're right that while we breathe a sigh of relief that we've got stability in our government, we've got to be thinking about the next president. And while we're thinking about the future, let's think about the present risk and threat, even if it exists among the corridors of the DOJ, where there still might be residing holdovers um, from the Trump administration that were part and parcel of potentially either criminal um, conduct while they were at DOJ or gross violation of of, uh, policies and practices. And and I fear those people are still there. We learned learned this, of course, uh, in one example, when it came out that subpoenas were issued um, and gag orders renewed and renewed and renewed um, for uh, a leak investigation that seems to have targeted uh, Trump's enemies. Yeah, I, I will say um, I, I have a lot of friends in the Justice Department, and I re- spoke to somebody, you know, during the last uh, months of the Trump presidency, you know, a- I actually after the election, 
And that person told me about how there was people who are in the Justice Department who were sort of, you know, really uh, on board with the Trump in, uh, agenda when we were trying to remake themselves with the transition team and portray themselves in a different light. So I, I have to say I, I am concerned about that as well. And I guess to me, though, you know, I would feel better if there were just, quote, bad people out there and we just had identified people who had bad judgment, get rid of them and we're good. What concerns me is, okay, what, how do we make sure that, because there's never going to, we're, we're going to have, we, we, this could happen in the future, right? We've got such, I mean, the damage to our, our, our sort of our way of life is significant. We have a huge percentage of Americans who believe conspiracy theories right now. We don't know who's going to be president or attorney general in the future. Is there a way to ensure that law enforcement power isn't abused? And if not, you know, do, do we need to have more limits and oversight of the use of law of various law enforcement tools because we can't, you know, limit it in ways to ensure that it's not abused? Yeah, you're, this is the core of the conundrum that Merrick Garland is facing right now, which, which is, and, and you, you mentioned a couple of the, the dilemmas, a, a statistically significant portion of our population um, buys into the notion uh, the false notion that uh, the election was stolen, uh, that Trump is coming back in August and being reinstated um, on and, you know, COVID is a hoax. You, you name it. There are incredibly unbelievable percentages of people that buy, buy into this nonsense. And so I think Merrick Garland is keenly aware and, and maybe even overly sensitive to that issue. And, and I, I say, I say this because He's got to wrestle with the issue of how aggressively do I come out and call out the the root cause of the domestic terror violence, the kind of thing we saw on on uh, January sixth, the kind of thing that 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 drives Oath Keepers and Proud Boys um, and Three Percenters, many of which we see amongst those arrested for January sixth. How how strongly do I come out and aggressively, and then how aggressively do I go after those who are inciting, encouraging, facilitating from a leadership level and may have crossed the line into criminal conduct. And I'm talking about the potential and certainly the allegations that exist that perhaps sitting members of Congress knew in advance that there would be intention to breach security at the Capitol, intention to commit violence, and may have somehow aided and abetted, whether it was giving tours or providing schematics of tunnels or some knowledge of funding or, or those around Trump, maybe Roger Stone, or even higher up, planning, coordinating, realizing this could get violent and doing nothing. That If that amounts to criminal conduct, that has to be pursued. Yet Garland is wrestling, I'm sure, with my God, I, I, I in, avo- in trying to avoid what my predecessors did in politicizing the DOJ, I could be called out for the very same perception if all I seem to be doing is targeting Republicans. Now, do I don't share that reticence. I, I happen to think for the good of democracy and the rule of law, he's got to, he's got to go where cases take them. He's got to make sure those cases are open and, and that it's not a question of politics um, entering in, but rather this, let's be sure that in an attempt to avoid political perceptions, we're not undermining the DOJ 
uh, moving into the future. That, that's my chief concern. I see it when Chris Ray testifies on the Hill, the FBI director. I see a reticence. I see every question, every response to every question, starting with, well, I need to be careful here. We don't investigate ideology. I see that kind of gun shyness that if we're not careful, is going to actually work to undermine the credibility of the justice system. Yeah, I have to say one thing that people forget is Merrick Garland has been a judge for a very long time. Uh, He was appointed during the Clinton years in the 90s. So you're talking well over 20 years where he's a federal judge. I do think you your life experience shapes who you are. I mean, for you and I, it was more on the law enforcement side for quite a bit, you know, significant portions of our lives at the very least. And it certainly has an impact. I mean, that I'm not the same person I was before I, I had that experience. I do think, you know, judges are careful. They're, um, they're thoughtful. They consider every side of an issue. They're not, they're not necessarily going to have the same uh, approach that a former prosecutor is going to have or a former FBI director or assistant director is going to have. And so I think, you know, with with Judge Garland, I think he's very concerned, as you say, about having the perception that he is also politicizing the department in some way or he's influenced by some sort of political end. I also think, you know, he's get, going, perhaps maybe deliberate about his approach. I mean, there's been a lot of criticism that he's not doing enough fast enough. In other words, we aren't hearing about you know, uh, task forces and different programs and policies. You know, there hasn't been this rollout, the anti-politization or clean the house sort of rollout. But yet, um, you know, obviously he's, look, I have a lot of faith in in uh, the group that is there. But I have to say, uh, I can understand why some are asking for more visible signs that, uh, there's a there is some you know going to be some accountability for what happened for the last four years. Accountability and consequences are 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 crucially important, and and um, I I also understand you know the, the concern that people aren't moving with a sense of uh, urgency on this. I'll give you the one one example here since I I live here in Arizona. Um, look, the DOJ issued a a letter to uh, the state of Arizona um, regarding the Merrick. Copa County fraud it, as it's called here. Um, and now, of course, we've learned just in recent days that that our ballots and, and some of the equipment seem to have been shipped off to a cabin in Montana. I'm not kidding for those listeners who think I'm kidding. Um, and the DOJ sent a letter to Arizona saying, hey, you know, you better be careful. We're looking at this. We don't we don't we think maybe you might be violating some laws about securing um, ballots. So and equipment and, you know, uh, be careful. Um, listen, while, while they were issuing the be careful letter, the ballots got chipped off to Montana. Um, and, uh, it's, it's out of control. And now of course, regularly every day, uh, dignitaries from other States, I use the term dignitary, dignitary loosely officials from other States are looking at, uh, coming to visit Phoenix and saying, how do you do this? How do you, how do you fake an audit? And you're going to see it throughout, throughout other key swing States. So it's time to move. It's time to move that there's a federal law about securing um, ballots and, and voting equipment. Let, let's, let's go. And so there is a time timeliness there that, and this is about really the credibility, you know, the Republicans constantly talk about, we need to do this and that to uh, increase the public's you know, trust of the election system and its credibility. Well, 
we we need to take action to to secure the vote, um, or or we'll not we'll not have one again. So um, that's got to happen. Um, and I I I I feel for Garland. I, I read in its entirety the new national strategy to counter domestic terrorism. And of course, Garland, as you know, has a strong background in domestic terrorism from the Oklahoma City bombing days. He he gets the threat. Um, but if you read this thing, and boy, I had to read it two, three times in some paragraphs, um, it is this, this very careful, almost contorted language about, you know, especially the part about needing a domestic terrorism law, you know, we're, we're going to consider and think about whether we should study this, we're going to talk to some experts, and maybe if we think there's some legislation needed, we, we might consult with Congress, you know, we're fixing to get ready to think about it. It's just so careful that it just reflects this kind of, uh, you know, we, we don't want to come out and offend anybody, but it's, look, this is way beyond politics at this point. Yeah, absolutely. So, Patty, I know that uh, uh, we have a bunch of questions from our listeners. Do you have one for us? Of course I do. Uh, here's one. Uh, how does Attorney General Garland evaluate career civil, pro- civil prosecutors who engage in unethical behavior at the behest of previous politically appointed leadership? So I'm going to come out and say that I believe he needs to ask the inspector general um, to, in, writ large, conduct an assessment of areas of concern within the the ranks of the DOJ professionals who remain and allegations that in er- various areas um, that merit further inquiry as to whether onboard people um, became politicized and did things that violated protocol practice regulations or law that I think that that needs to happen. And it, and again, it's got to be done carefully because there'll be a perception that there's some witch hunt and they're kicking Republicans out. I am not saying that at all. But I'm saying I'm not yet hearing that there's an effort writ large to determine who amongst them still is still there and violated regulations or law. I'm, I'm not seeing that. And certainly we can start with the subpoenas. Garland, for the leak investigation, Garland has asked for an IG investigation there. But I'm suggesting that with regard to any number of things, including pressure from the White House, to, to do things, investigate people, investigate uh, uh, alleged fraud in, in the in non-existing fraud or satellites from Italy or laser beams from somewhere else that affected the election. Um, we got to figure out who did what, when, and whether or not they should remain on board. Yeah, I have to say, you know, one of the things that I think is a challenge here is that there were, you know, likely going to be investigations that had some predicate to them. And the issue is really, you know, was the judgment to use those tools um, infected by some political purpose? In other words, for example, as a a former prosecutor, I will tell you, the chances that you are going to have any prosecutions coming out of people who are leaking information you know, two members of Congress or two associates of members of Congress to try to get the word out uh, to members of Congress about what the administration was doing or what Trump had done during the election, the chance that you were going to get a conviction along those lines is very, very, very uh, remote because 
I think a lot of jurors are going to see these people actually doing a public service by ensuring that uh, there is a check and balance on a runaway, you know, runaway president, the president's uh, presidential administration. And, you know, sending out 100 plus subpoenas, for example, I'm referring these are to the Schiff and Swalwell Associates and others. Uh, it seems like tremendous overkill and obviously was, um, it seems to be motivated, had some political motivation. Yet, on its face, of course, the subpoenas, you know, there was some predicate for, the, for issuing the subpoenas. I think part of the challenge is going to be, and this is why I think you're right, Frank, to talk about the inspector general is, you're going to have to use your own evaluation and judgment of motivation. And I think that's what's going to have to happen here. And that's why I think people may be somewhat disappointed, people who are expecting, you know, prosecutors to end up in jail or or members of law enforcement to end up in jail for doing this. It's not, it's not going to be that, but it's going to be, I think, determining whether or not they acted in an ethical and a, and a manner and consistent with, not only policy, DOJ and FBI, let's say policy, but also uh, values. I, I agree. Um, it, this is why it, this fits far more into the portfolio of an IG versus some kind of criminal prosecution. It's um, it's it's highly unlikely to happen, and and could really be exploited as well. We we wouldn't want to see that happening from from either side. I, I'll give you another example where I think there needs to be. Um, uh, Garland needs to move quickly to figure out what happened, and that's the whole area of of what happened leading up to January 6th with, within the DOJ and FBI. It's clear now we're not going to have an independent uh, commission. Um, if we have anything at all, it's probably going to be something that Nancy Pelosi puts together, um, whether it's a select committee or there's a sitting committee that's chosen to do this. But you know that that will immediately be painted as political because it'll be majority Democrats or all Democrats. I don't think anybody else is going to participate. And so, so, you know, he needs to go, okay, all right, I'm going to, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to do this myself because look, there are serious questions about why didn't the FBI conduct some kind of threat assessment um, for what they should have known was going to be potentially chaos. I mean, we, as I've pointed out uh, just yesterday to someone, I've seen the FBI do uh, intel assessments for the Azalea Festival, certainly for July 4th fireworks, certainly for the Super Bowl, the Orange Bowl, you name it. There's an assessment for it. There's a large public gathering somewhere. And you've got to be kidding me that it appears they didn't do one to uh, where the vice president and all members of Congress would be present in one place to ratify um, the peaceful transfer of power uh, and the electoral college vote. So, um, we need answers on that, and we need to understand what DOJ said no to. You know, I I hear scuttlebutt that lawyers, you know, the quote quote this was the lawyers. Okay, um, what what does that mean? You weren't allowed to monitor social media even during assessments that the the AG guidelines permit. Were you not allowed to be present? What what what? Who said no to what? When what failed? Let's stop waiting for some uh, mythical commission and let's have Garland do it, at least for the purposes of looking at DOJ conduct. Yeah, I've got to say, uh, I had uh, uh, a member of Congress uh, talk to me in advance of the Ray hearing. You know, we discussed potential questions. And, you know, part of my focus uh, speaking to the member was on exactly what the FBI had, what intel the FBI had 
prior to the attack and what they did with that intel and who they told in the administration and what they were allowed to do and not allowed to do. And I have to say, I was, you know, the multiple members asked questions along those lines. I was pretty dissatisfied with Director Ray's responses. You know, he was very, I'd say, evasive on those points. What, what was your take on why he he testified the way he did? Uh, first, I, I think some of the questions weren't even, well, they were, some of them were very astute, perhaps those that you consulted on, but some, <laughs> some were not meaty enough or, or deep enough and probing enough. And then I will also say that at the very least, um, there's, there is a level of frustration, frustration that I experience in the way Ray chooses to respond to questions. And I find it overly cautious. I, I think that part of it is stylistic, meaning I just don't, I, I just think he, he doesn't speak um, succinctly, um, but also I think much of it is there. There seems to be a concern that anything he says is going to be quickly politicized by about half the people in that hearing room. And and so, again, just as we talked about with Garland, I think there's this overly cautious approach to holy cow. Uh, I don't want half the public to think that you know we've got an agenda that's political. And I. But but I can tell you I contrast that with the director um, when I was was in and, and had retired was Bob Mueller, and it's funny it's a little funny because the criticism on Bob Mueller as director was he was a man of very few words he, he was a, most most a media hosts will tell you he was the worst interview they ever did I know Larry King said <laughs> Larry King with the old Larry King show said worst interview he ever did and and it's true it was all yes no and I can't tell you but you know what when Mueller said yes he said it with conviction and confidence. So for example, if Mueller, I think were asked the question, which was asked during the, the, the recent hearing of Ray, are you aware that people think Trump's coming back in August? Are you all over that? You know, and, and Ray said, well, I've got to be careful. We don't investigate ideology. I can't comment on Mueller. Mueller would have said, yes, I'm aware of it. Bingo. It, that's it. And that would have said it all. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think we need more of that. I, I, I just think we need more straight up answers. And I think we need more probing questions like what the heck you, you think you were done with by sharing and pressing send on an email with the Norfolk FBI field office memo. And, and you think that's it. You, you fulfilled your obligations. You don't think this was a failure, you know, well, we could always do better. He said, no, you, yeah, you failed. And so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, let's just be straight up and, and maintain the credibility. Well, you know, on another line, I would say about uh, kind of a style thing in, with uh, Garland is, of course, you know, we've we've talked a little bit about accountability earlier. A lot of our listeners are upset, and I think they expected that they would see Donald Trump, uh, uh, or, you know, arrested by now. They would see members of the Trump administration facing criminal charges, all sorts of things. Uh, that I wasn't quite sure was going to happen, although I did think uh, there's I had advocated, I think, for a special counsel to look at these questions, because I do think the issue of politicization is an important one. Patty, can you give us a sampling? I know there's been a number of questions along those lines, but you, have you picked a, a couple out to give us a sense of, of that? I do. Let's go with this one first. Yes, of course. Uh, when will someone be going to jail? I think that's what a lot of people want to know. How can Trump's White House peeps get away with all this stuff, including perjury, on the record to judges and Americans? Okay, so you know, here's here's the good news, bad news, and of course, the good news is we're we're at or about 500 uh, arrests for January 6. Um, 
there is strong indications that many, many, many more, even perhaps hundreds more arrests are coming. We are seeing conspiracy charges. We're seeing specific groups being lumped together and called out, uh, which is fantastic. Three percenters, Oath Keepers, Proud Boys. But now the not so good news. We've, we've yet to hear um, anything about those who may have conspired at, at, a, at a congressional level or, or Trump support. We keep hearing interesting investigative journalism um, that indicates there, were, there may have been planning meetings at Trump Hotel or some other hotel in town. Um, all of that needs to get looked at unabashedly, unafraid of where the chips are going to, to fall um, but yet I've got to set expectations because my social media, Renato, just like yours, is filled with people saying, where are the handcuffs? When are they taking Trump out? When, you know, and, and the reality is I don't think they fully grasp um, what it takes to do that. Num- number one, the kind of evidence burden that exists and the careful consideration of what the repercussions are in the future, because rest assured, um, the other party if they have a chance and and they will, they will someday um, will be very quick to turn around and probably um, gin up allegations that allow them to do the very same thing. So um, we need to, we need to level set our expectations. Am I a hundred percent confident that, that it's being, that that's all being looked at? Well, look, Chris Ray was asked point blank. um, Are you, are you aware of uh, investigative interest in Trump? Uh, his role in January 6th. And he said, I'm not aware of any such investigation. That tells you a lot about where we are there. I can't, I I have some degree of confidence that members of the House and or Senate, if there are valid allegations that predicate a case, that they would be lumped into the overall investigation. And I just have to say to people, be patient. These things take a long time. And often when you see people flipping in the January 6th investigation, like a lifetime founding member of Oath Keepers has agreed to cooperate, um, and others, um, rest assured, the hard questions are going to get asked. Um, the question is, what happens with the answers to those questions? I, I think that that is right as to, for example, uh, the role on January 6th. And uh, certainly Trump had a role there, although I think a case may be hard to bring. It really depends. Giuliani may have been closer to it. Uh, he's certainly got his own set of problems already uh, with the uh, federal prosecutors. I will say that you know, there has been, I do think, an element of overhyping uh, by some analysts. Uh, not, I, not, I, I'm not uh, suggesting you or I did, but that's uh, there of of uh, what the consequences would be for Trump. In other words, or his very top associates. In other words, Trump. To me, I think I, I am convinced. I was one of thousands of prosecutors convinced that former prosecutors convinced that. Um, there was sufficient evidence to prosecute Trump for obstructing justice, for example. Now, I, I will say it's notable that there's, I've seen no activity along those lines. There's been no discussion of that or any, any uh, consideration of that or one way or the other. But as to a lot of other things that, that happened during the Trump administration, I think people need to understand there's a difference between what's criminally prosecutable what potentially is a civil violation, what potentially is just an abuse of power that's really doesn't fit neatly within a criminal statute, like perhaps what happened with Ukraine. That was the subject of the second impeachment. All I'm trying to say is uh, it's unfortunately what is wrongful or even unlawful behavior 
uh, it can be difficult uh, to have the level of consequences that maybe we'd all expect. Like, hey, if you do this or that, you should go to jail. Well, it can be a little bit more challenging to build that case uh, than you might think. And so I guess what I would just say to everyone is that makes it even more important to ensure that we set up safeguards uh, to ensure that that these actions never get uh, taken or under, uh, uh, you know, we never have to undergo this again. Uh, completely agree. Um, engaging in a protracted, by, by the way, I do happen to, to think, and I think I think you agree, as you said, that that uh, there's a valid case for obstruction of justice with regard to, to Trump. But I also am a realist and understand that a protracted, and boy, would it be protracted, a protracted attempt to prosecute a former president for what he did in office, trying to protect himself, um, is it could could be extremely detrimental um, to to the country overall. It's a balancing act. It's you got to do a cost benefit analysis here, and I could argue it either way. Um, with regard to Trump, though, I am encouraged, and I think I actually think that Garland's looking at this as part and parcel of his decision making. I'm encouraged by what's going on in New York. And I, I, again, it's not right on point because it's going to end up being about his organization and his taxes, but the notion that a former president can be accountable and held accountable, especially by a state, uh, by a, by a city district attorney, um, that's, that's the, one of the beauties of our system. And it, and it may be that Garland's keeping an eye on that going, you know what, there's going to be a form of accountability here and the message will be sent that a former president can be held accountable. And, and uh, we have to take some, some measure of hope in that. Yeah, I think that's right. I certainly, uh, it certainly looks to me that the Manhattan DA is going to be moving forward with the case. I think it's interesting, you know, from what I, my understanding is that we had uh, last time Daniel Alonzo on the former number two person in the Manhattan DA's office used to work as Cy Vance's uh, uh, first assistant. Um, or the chief assistant there, uh, that, uh, you know, it may be a case against the Trump organization as an entity, maybe against uh, Weisselberg, others. And who knows, obviously, if whether they'll flip or whether that'll go beyond that. I mean, very serious, uh, very serious case that I think could could come by the end of the year. So definitely something there. Obviously, Rudy Giuliani, that's another one. I do think that can cause real problems for Trump because uh, Giuliani's defense is going to be Trump told me to do it. Trump, I was acting under Trump's uh, direction, and so I thought I was acting in the United States interests, uh, not uh, foreign governments. And I, I suspect Donald Trump's not going to want to uh, raise his right hand and swear to that under oath uh, at a trial of Giuliani. So I, I think there's definitely a lot of minefields coming up for Trump, and uh, you know we'll have to see how those all play themselves out. I think it's, it, but it's more complicated. Then, uh, then unfortunately, uh, the world, you know, a lot of people imagine the world to be. It, it is a complicated system we live in. Whenever I've traveled uh, overseas, um, particularly in connection with my FBI work, uh, other nations look at us and just scratch their head and go, wait, wait, wait a minute. You, you have county police departments, city police departments, state police departments, city prosecutors, state, pro- what, what the heck? And they, they don't get the fact that, yes, it's a mess. But it actually, this redundancy and these layers help us to preserve our democracy and avoid 
the abuses that can occur, in, as you see in other nations, when there's just one national police force and one national prosecutive entity, that, that, that's trouble. And so there's some beauty to this mess. Yeah, it's an interesting point, Frank. And, you know, a lot of times folks, uh, you know, on, on uh, our side of the aisle, can at times be like caught up with having more power for the government to do more things. And obviously uh, sometimes you do need the government to, you know, help solve big problems, whether it's climate change or systematic racism. However, um, there is something to be said for having checks on the government's power and limits on government's power. And as you point out, a distribution of power amongst different layers of government, so that when we have somebody in the White House who's truly evil uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it's harder for them to accomplish uh, evil things during their time in office. Yeah. And I and, and that's why, you know, I think all of us have been keeping kind of a list by our, our desk uh, as to during the Trump administration of, you know, things to do list, th- things to fix so that, as you say, this doesn't happen again, or at least we mitigate the chances. And. You know, the list is long. Um, one, one of the things that came up with a discussion I had today was that, that I, I had on my list was this whole issue. If you remember back, you know, things Garland can help fix, right? This issue um, of the Brett Kavanaugh uh, reinvestigation when he was appointed for Supreme Court. And, um, you know, the FBI had to do kind of an update, which is what happens when you've ar- you're already in the system. They already looked at you. But now, you know, you're getting appointed to something else and you got to re-up it. And people don't understand that the rule, the bizarre rules on reinvestigations is that the client, in this case, the White House, that's requesting the reinvestigation, they get to dictate the parameters of the reinvestigation. It's not true for the initial investigation. Boy, that is comprehensive. I've, I've done those in my career. But on these weird reinvestigations, you know, particularly when certain allegations come up, the White House can say, you look, you interview this woman. You interview that person, but you don't go here, there, and here. And and that needs to change. And that can help to avoid uh, the White House pulling the strings, no matter who's in, in charge, um, and telling the FBI how to conduct an investigation. It's the only place, the only area of FBI work where their client is not the American people. It's the requester of the reinvestigation. Yeah, that that is seriously problematic. I got to say, Frank, you know, I have one of those lists as well, the way that you do. You talk about that list that you keep of what what needs to change, what practices we need to have different. One thing that I I have been missing and that I kind of expected to see was that once we had a new administration, we would start seeing efforts to reform governmental power um, in the wake of the Trump presidency. I haven't really seen a lot of overt discussion or messaging on that why do you think that is and are is that something that you wish you you were seeing so i i i think we're right back to this cautious or perhaps overly cautious approach i think we're back to the political reality of what would require congressional concurrence approval or legislation whether or not something could be done by executive order whether or not people would balk at you know here we go again too many executive orders I think all of that is playing into it. And I continue to say I'm concerned that there's an overly cautious approach because I think the window of time to fix things is unknown, but short. 
and could be quite frankly as short as the the midterm elections if in those areas uh where con- congressional uh, action is required um but yeah i if anything renato we're seeing kind of more government power i think we are seeing executive orders we're seeing you know this you know in an attempt to try and fix the last four years we're seeing people you know take action so i don't i don't know but i fear politics has creeped into this decision making there's an element of fear there's over cautiousness um but i'm telling you time's a wasting and you got to seize got to seize the window yeah that's exactly where my concern is as well frank is we have an opportunity here to set up structures to ensure that governmental power isn't abused. And I don't see the sense of urgency that is, that would be, that needs to, that needs to be there because the window could very well be very short. Well, look, one thing I want to make sure I do before I go, there's a couple of things I want to talk to you about. One is you, you've come out with a book. Um, Can you tell us about your book? And, you know, a lot of, a lot of folks who are listening are big fans of yours. And I think, would be very interested in 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 uh, checking out anything you've written. Uh, so th- tell us about that first. Well, you're you're kind to ask, and I and it's you know I don't feel too much like uh, I'm, I'm Huck, uh, huckster here selling a book because it ties right into our discussion, which is um, DOJ, FBI, and um, the power of our institutions in preserving our democracy. I, I couldn't I could no longer handle uh, four years of bureau, what I call bureau bashing, the institution I spent 25 years uh, at and dedicated my career to being bashed daily and the men and women of the bureau being bashed daily by the former president. And I became the guy that I thought I'd never be, which is the guy who writes a book about his FBI career, but it's really not about my career. It's about, it's called the FBI way inside the bureau's code of excellence. I focus on, applying the way the Bureau does values-based performance, values-based excellence. And and the the premise of the book is very simple. Leadership that's based on values is more successful than leadership that tries to do it without a foundation of values. And I tell you how the FBI preserves its internal code of conduct. Um, Each chapter, there's seven chapters in the book. Each chapter starts with the letter C and it starts with code moves on to conservancy, which is a, a concept that we're all into the, in this together and that preserving, and this applies to the country, right? We're all in this together. Preserving our values requires all of us. It's a team sport. We're part of something bigger than ourselves. And we've lost that concept um, today. I, I move on to things like uh, credibility um, and consistency and compassion and consequences, all things we've talked about today um, that, that happen inside the FBI that you can apply to your own family team or, or organization. That's, that's the book in a nutshell. It's become a national bestseller, um, which I'm thrilled about because people really want to learn more about values, values, values in today's society. That's great. And, and then, of course, you also have your own podcast. We're actually part of the same podcast network now. Can you tell us a little bit about that podcast? Yeah, we're look, we're all tied into MSW Media. Uh, Allison Gill, uh, many of your listeners will know, is, is heading that up. And Again, the bureau is called the bureau. The podcast is called the Bureau with Frank Figluzzi, and again, um, it's just expo- I, I see it as part of my mission to share 
what the work of the bureau is, the rank and file, the men and women of the bureau who just get out of bed every day trying to protect us and share their mission, their lives, their cases with the public. And it, there's been a really astounding success here. People are eating this up because it's, it's unprecedented. The bureau's never permitted an outsider, someone who's no, not in the bureau, um, to have access every single week to an active duty FBI employee. And that's what I do. So we've, we're out now with, uh, with, I think, four episodes so far, one every Tuesday. Um, we've had a, uh, a top female PhD DNA scientist from the famous FBI laboratory. She was phenomenal. And I'm learning things like DNA. Now, did you know they're down to less than two hours to do a DNA match? And it can be done at your, wow. it can be done with a cheek swab at your local police department. If you're being detained, they stick it in a digital kit. It get your profile gets digitalized, sent to the FBI lab. Two hours within two hours, they tell you whether you know that police officer knows whether he's got a rapist or murder on his hands. That's in the DNA file. The other, you know, other we did uh, behavioral profiling. We've done serial killers. We're talking to the people who do this for a living, track these folks, um, and there's some amazing upcoming uh, episodes as well. You know, you know, our grandkids are going to laugh at the concept of fingerprints. Someday they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna look at it like we look at a rotary phone. They're, the thing of the future is iris scans for everybody, and that's where this is going. So we're getting into all kinds of really cool topics. We got a whole for people who are into CSI crime scene stuff. We got the guy in charge of evidence teams in the FBI. He's been everywhere. He was at Boulder, Colorado, Atlanta spa shootings, um, Nashville Christmas Eve bombing. He's been there, done that. And we talk about crime scene processing. Wow. That's amazing. I got to tell you, one of the honors of my life was working with FBI agents and other federal agents in the course of my work as a prosecutor. Just some of the most amazing people I've ever encountered in my life. And having a window into active duty folks and what they're doing, that's, that is really something, something that you will not get elsewhere, folks. So where can they find your podcast if, if they're interested in, to, to find out more? Thanks. The good, the good news is it's everywhere you want to download your, your uh, podcast from. So if you're on an Apple, iTunes, Spotify, uh, Google podcast, it's, it's all there. Um, and it's, a, it's a couple of key, key presses and you're, you're there. Um, we keep it between 30, 45 minutes and we're done, but you get to hear from a real FBI employee about some pretty neat things. That's amazing. Wow. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Frank. It's absolutely been a pleasure. I'm going to be checking that podcast out myself. Thanks, Renato. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. On Topic.